Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live at our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, Streamwood, or Huntley. Or check out a service online. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. This is the third week in our series, Sexual Wholeness in a Broken World. And today, our topic is identity, and in particular, gender identity. You know what that means? It means that this is not going to be complicated or controversial in any way. And I'm sure that by the time we're done, all of your questions are going to be answered. And uh, we might even get done early, right? Not a chance, okay? Um, What you're about to get is about half of what I drafted, which was about half of what I thought we needed to cover, okay? So uh, when we're done, you are certainly going to have more thoughts, more questions. uh, But we found an easy solution for that. Uh, Pastor Jim is going to be having office hours all week long. All you have to do is walk in, and he will answer all the questions that you want. He's readily available. I'm just kidding. Um, This is the reason why we have provided a resource list. Uh, There's so much to learn about these topics that we can only just scratch the surface in the weekend services. And we want to encourage you to go to places where you can learn uh, what Scripture says and from reliable guides about these things. So I'd encourage you uh, to do that. Uh, Before we jump in, I do want to mention one thing that we're going to be doing as part of this series that's coming up. we had one topic that we could not find a way to fit into the weekend uh, you know, schedule for various reasons, but we thought it was really, really important. We didn't want to overlook this uh, because it's related to our sexuality and, in particular, uh, the brokenness that we experience in sexuality. Uh, it's the topic of sexual abuse and sexual assault. You see, some of the ways that we experience brokenness are not because of the things that we have done, but because of the things that have been done to us. And so this week, I sat down with a group of experts on this topic, uh, pastors, counselors, survivors of sexual abuse, and we had a conversation about it. It's a really good conversation. We recorded it. And after uh, the final week of the series, we're going to be releasing that as sort of the kind of the fifth bonus uh, teaching that's just going to be online. Uh, I would encourage you to check that out when we release it. This is a really important topic. Even if it's not a part of your personal experience, I guarantee it is part of the experience of someone who is near you, someone that you care about. And so uh, I want to encourage you, as a church, this is something that we should uh, be informed about, we should have compassion about, and we should have God's guidance on. So uh, check that out when we put it out. All right, here we go. We're talking about identity, and identity is how we answer the question, who am I? And it's important to answer that question, but not just answer the question, but ask, how do I know who I am? How do I figure out my identity? Because there are really three basic ways that people figure out their identity. The, the first is what you might call the traditional approach. This is the approach taken uh, in most traditional societies. And the way it works is you look out to your society and your place in society, and that tells you who you are. So you are born a, a daughter or a, a brother or uh, you're a, a farmer or you're a baker, you're a noble, a peasant, you're a Lutheran, a Muslim. You, you're kind of assigned by your place in society to who you are and what you should be doing uh, because of that. You can sort of think of this as the beginning of every Disney movie, right? Like Mulan is told you can be a wife but not a warrior. Belle is told you're a girl so get your head out of a book. Aladdin is a street rat and Jasmine has to marry a prince. This is where it begins. And this is the approach that is most common throughout history and really uh, throughout the world today in traditional societies. And there's a lot of good that comes from this approach to identity. Uh, The main thing is that people in this sort of uh, way of thinking, they don't have identity crises. They're not saying, oh, who am I? What what am I supposed to do? They they know. It's very clear. Uh, They can step into the role that they've been given. But of course, there are drawbacks to this. Uh, For one thing, what if you don't fit the role you've been given, you know? Or what if the role you've been given is really miserable? You're born into a lower caste or your your race is considered inferior. 
The, the traditional approach can be a way to reinforce injustice. And so people have asked the question, well, why couldn't we simply let individuals figure out who they are for themselves? And so this leads to what we call the modern approach to identity. And the way the modern approach works is that you say you look inside yourself, you examine your feelings and your desires, and you find out who you are and declare to the world what that is. That you go kind of from the inside out expressing who you are to the people around you. Uh, this is kind of how all Disney movies end, right? The, the mermaid marries a human, the rat becomes a chef, Wreck-It Ralph becomes a good guy, Luca lives on land, all of this. People are following their heart, they're being true to themselves, and that's how everybody lives happily ever after. And there is a lot of good to this. It recognizes that each person is unique, you know? It, it celebrates the variety and the diversity of humanity. It gives people opportunities to move from where they started to someplace better, it's really good but it actually comes with some drawbacks. For one thing, it's a lot of pressure to try to figure out who you are on your own. To have all of that on your shoulders is incredible source of anxiety, especially when you're young. This weight of saying, who am I? How do I figure this out? And what if what I find inside is not something that is worthy or good? And so it creates a lot of insecurity. And what's ironic about this is that when you're insecure about who you are, rather than looking from the inside, you tend to actually look to people around you and say, can you give me some help on this? Can you tell me who I am? Can you affirm me? Can you uh, give me some guidance to figure this whole thing out? And it actually makes us look to our peers and to listen to advertisers and look at YouTubers and all sorts of people saying, can you kind of give me some guidance on who I'm supposed to be? This is the reason why all, all the people who try to think for themselves they'll end up thinking the same things. And all the rebels rebel in the same way, and everybody who has a unique fashion sense is dressing like all the rest of them. One of the big secrets of modern identity is that when we look to ourselves to figure out who we are, what we find there is very often the scripts that we have picked up from other people that tell us who we ought to be. The, the good news with all of this is there is actually a third way to figure out your identity. It's not the traditional way, it's not the modern way, it's the biblical way. Rather than looking out to your society or into your heart, you look up to God and you ask the question, who am I? And he tells you, he says, this is who you are. And what's amazing about this is it actually cuts through the, the stifling, rigid nature of the traditional side and uh, the anxiety and insecurity of the modern side and gives you a foundation on which you can build your, your, your greater sense of identity to build your life on. So how do we figure out who God says we are? We do that by looking at his word. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Uh, the passage is really easy to find today. It's on the very first page of the Bible, okay? We're gonna be in Genesis chapter one. We're gonna be looking at just one verse, Genesis 1:27. This verse is one sentence long, but this is one of the most powerful transformative sentences ever uttered in human language. Ready for this? God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, we're gonna be looking at three different types of identity that God gives us. Here's the first one, our human identity, our human identity. This could be really easy to kind of skim over. I mean, we know we're human, you know, check. We got that one figured out. But what God says about being human is so revolutionary that even after thousands of years of proclaiming it, it still hasn't fully sunk in for us, okay? The very first thing the Bible says about us on the very first page is that we are made in the image of God. 
do you understand how insane that is? To, to say that every single person you have ever encountered is a picture, a reflection of the almighty creator, sustainer, and ruler of the universe. The, the God of infinite love and beauty and goodness and wisdom is somehow, in some way, expressed through you and me. That's astonishing. Now, this doesn't mean that you and I are divine. It doesn't mean that we are gods or that we are even a part of God. What it means is this, we reflect God. When we look up to God and say, who am I, God? The first thing he says is, you're like me. That's amazing. Now, the precise ways that we reflect God are things that theologians love to discuss. It's a big conversation, uh, but that is a teaching for another time. For now, what the main thing I wanna emphasize is this. If we are made in the image of God, it means each and every one of us has immeasurable value. We are worthy of supreme dignity simply because we are made in God's image. If you are a portrait of God, you are a priceless masterpiece. And this applies to everyone. Every single person, no exceptions. The the powerful and the weak, the young and the old, men and women, rich and poor, the native born and the immigrant, the baby in the womb and the patient on hospice, the person with disabilities and the people without them, the people of every race and ethnicity and economic status and class and culture, the, the successes and the failures, the heroes and the villains, the celebrities and the nobodies, people who are like you and the people who are different from you, the people who agree with you and the people who disagree with you, the people who love you and the people who hate you. And most relevant for our topic today, people who experience their sexuality and their gender differently than you. I want to emphasize this, okay? There are some of you who are here and you are asking the question, okay? You're, you're, wondering, you're wondering about your sexuality or your gender. Maybe you uh, identify as gay or transgender and you're wondering, what do Christians actually think about me? What do the people in this church think about me? What does God think about me? So I want you to hear this loud and clear. You are made in the image of God. You are supremely valuable. You are worthy of honor and dignity that cannot be taken away. And anybody, anytime somebody has treated you in a way other than that, they're not just doing something that is an offense against you. It is something that is an offense against the God who made you and loves you. Everyone, everyone is made in the image of God and ought to be treated as such. No exceptions. Now, the reason this is so revolutionary is because it cuts through both the traditional uh, and the, the modern way of figuring out who we are. I mean, I want you to think about this. In, in ancient society, when, when the Bible was written, for you to say someone was made in the image of God, that, that sounds completely absurd. Like everybody knew, everybody knew that kings were more valuable than slaves and men were more valuable than women and my people were more valuable than those barbarians out there. Everybody knew that. So can you imagine reading the words of scripture and it says God made mankind in his own image. That, that, is, that is revolutionary. It's equally revolutionary for the modern heart as well. Like, we're told as a modern society, if you look inside, discover who you are, you will experience a sense of acceptance and self-worth. And I think we just gotta be honest. Like, when you look around, is that what you see other people experiencing? Oh, man, they just, they're so secure, you know? I look around and I see insecurity and anxiety all over the place. I don't know, maybe I'm more messed up than everybody else, but when I listen to my own heart, I don't hear this message of dignity and value and respect. I hear a lot of self-doubt, a lot of self-criticism, I hear a lot of questions, you know? Am I good enough? Am I lovable? Is my life valuable? Am I doing enough? You see, our hearts are really good at asking those questions, but they are terrible at answering them. 
This is why we usually end up listening to the voices of the crowd around us, saying, am I okay, am I okay? And the crowd doesn't help. The crowd will tell you, you know, you'll be okay, you'll be valuable if you look this way and you, you do this and you accomplish that and here's, here's the things that will make you acceptable to us. And none of us measure up. What we desperately need is to hear the voice of someone outside of our hearts and above the crowd who can say, you are made in the image of God and no one can take that away. That is our human identity. We also need to talk about our gender identity. Here's what I mean by this. Our gender identity is how you answer the question, who am I when it comes to your gender? Am I a man or a woman? Am I a boy or a girl? And uh, what does that mean about how I should live and, and, and who I am? And for a long time, people answered that question using the traditional method of, of finding their identity. When a child was born, their physical anatomy told everyone where they were assigned in society. So males were assigned certain roles, females were assigned other roles, society expected certain things of males and different things for females. There was masculinity and there was femininity. And in many ways, this was straightforward and simple, but it was also kind of stifling. Because the reality is not everybody fit into the roles and expectations that corresponded to their sex. I mean, just a, a silly example, okay? There, there are men who will show up to a men's event, right? And they'll, they'll, they'll be a pro athlete and muscle cars and just piles of bacon. And they'll be like, okay, I, I get this is not quite me, really, you know? Or a woman will show up at a women's event and it'll be like, oh, there's these beautiful table decorations and this cute craft and there's tea and scones. And they're thinking, why didn't we get bacon? I mean, seriously, like how did that get gendered? Everybody loves bacon, right? But at a deeper level, the stereotypes just often don't fit. There are lots of men who are empathetic and collaborative and nurturing and good at multitasking. And there are lots of women who are ambitious and decisive and logical and competitive. And the labels we put on things, they just don't match up. For a lot of people, the stereotypes, they feel like clothing that isn't just quite the right size. You know, like, I guess I could wear this, but it doesn't fit me well. And for other people, the stereotypes, they don't just feel a little off. They, they actually raise questions. Like, what if, you know, what culture says, you know, is, is a man doesn't fit me. Does that mean I'm not a man? Or if I'm drawn to things that are considered feminine, does that mean I'm a woman? And, and so in recent years, people have tried to take the modern approach to gender and, and say, okay, let's do this. Look inside yourself and ask the question, what does it mean for me to be a man or to be a woman? Or even ask the question, am I a man or a woman? Or maybe both or, or neither. And there are some people who are finding when they, they look inside, they, they're not just out of sync with the gender stereotypes. They actually feel out of sync with their own bodies. Their, their inner psychological world doesn't match their outer physical and social world. Their, their inner sense of self is a different gender than, than the one that corresponds with their biology. And when someone experiences this, this, is what, this tension is what we call gender dysphoria. It's a, a deep discomfort between your sense of gender and the, the, the sex of your body. And for those of us who have never experienced this, this is a hard thing to fully understand. Uh, it, it's different for everybody. It's not always the same. But I, I got some quotes from a couple of people who actually experienced this describing what it's like. But one of them said, gender dysphoria is something that is painful. It hurts. It's looking in the mirror and thinking, who is this person? Who am I looking at? Is that someone who just came into my house? And then realizing, no, that's just me in the mirror. Another person said that it's like an electric current running through my body that caused my joints to ache, my stomach to turn, my hands to shake, and nausea in the most severe moments of dysphoria. Laying in bed at night, it almost felt like that elect the electric circuits of my body didn't quite match up, 
like cramming two wrong puzzle pieces together. And this experience of distress and being out of sync, it it contributes and it corresponds to a number of mental illnesses and concerns, anxiety and depression, eating disorders. People who experience gender dysphoria are at a much greater risk of self-harm and suicide. Uh, Studies range on the exact percentage, but the kind of middle of the road ones say that about one in five transgender adults have attempted suicide. That's, That's incredibly high, that's incredibly high. And so for followers of Jesus, what should our first reaction to that be? I'll tell you this, our first reaction should be profound sympathy and compassion. But before we decide what people need to do or talk about the big social controversies around this, we need to feel sorrow over the pain that people in our community experience. There are people here who experience this kind of distress maybe every day, and it's profoundly isolating. And so our first response is to simply say, I am so sorry that you experienced that. I can't imagine how difficult that would be, but it sounds so painful. You see, we we follow a king who looked on people with compassion. He saw their need. He drew near. He took on their burdens. And so that's our first impulse too. Now, of course, we've got to ask the further question, okay, what, what should someone do to resolve that tension? You know, when your inner world and your outer world don't match up, which one tells you who you really are? You know, which one takes precedence, the inside or the outside? Now, in recent years, and we're really talking about the last five to 10 years, our society kind of as a whole has decided that people's inner world should take priority. Your inner self is your true self, and that will tell you what your, your true gender is. And so because of that, society has encouraged people to try to resolve the tension by getting their outer world to line up with their inner world. Their, their physical and social world needs to come in line with their psychological world. And so for some people, this means kind of socially transitioning from one gender to another, uh, changing their name, adopting different gender pronouns, changing their appearance, their hair, their their clothing, their makeup, maybe changing their their gender on a legal document. For other people, it has meant physically transitioning. This has a whole range of things involved in it. It might be hormone therapy, taking uh, cross-sex hormones, hair removal, uh, plastic surgery, uh, surgery to remove breasts, uh, have hysterectomy, uh, reshaping their genitals. All of this to conform someone's outer world to their inner psychological experience of gender. And the hope behind all of these efforts is that someone might find a more authentic way to express themselves, and hopefully that would reduce their gender dysphoria and and the things that go along with it, the mental health concerns that go along with it. I want to be really clear about this. This is a massive experiment that has never been done before. This is the first time in history that a society as a whole has embraced this idea that you ought to match your outside world to your inside world or had the ability to go to such dramatic lengths to get people to do that. And so our society really has become like this crowd of onlookers. When someone looks inside and feels confused about their gender, society is there offering a script, an interpretation. Well, maybe that's because you're actually not the gender of your body. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is because you're transgender. And so we've got to ask a question. What, what is this doing to people And the further question of what should followers of Christ think about this? How do we think that you ought to resolve the tension between the inside and the outside? Which gets priority? And as followers of Jesus, we want to say that your outside world, your physical sex, rather than your psychological sense of gender, tells you who you really are. Let me give a few reasons for this. But before I do that, uh, let me tell you uh, about a resource that I find really helpful. This is one that's not actually on our resource list. And the reason for that is it's not a book that's completely about sexuality or gender. Uh, it's about a number of different things. But there's a really good chapter about gender identity in there. It's called The Secular Creed. 
It's by Rebecca McLaughlin. And uh, she's brilliant. Um, It's really, really good on all the different topics she has. But that particular uh, chapter is well worth reading on this subject. But but look again at Genesis 1.27, okay? God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so this is the second thing that's said about humanity here, okay? On the very first page of the Bible, God designed humanity in two sexes. Uh, And if you keep reading the, the section right after this, it explains one of the main reasons why that's the case. It's for procreation. Okay, so uh, God says, be fruitful and multiply to, to the human beings. Uh, and you cannot be fruitful and multiply if you don't have the male-female binary in sex. You can't have reproduction without that. And moving forward in the Bible, this sex distinction uh, isn't just about you know, procreation and biology. It becomes the basis for all sorts of ethical and social distinctions. So you read the Old Testament laws about things like uh, marriage and who can have sex with whom. And there are even laws that say uh, people should not dress in the clothing in that culture that corresponds to someone of the other gender. And you might say, okay, well, that's Old Testament. You know, there's some things that change from the Old Testament. And after Jesus, it's not quite the same. So what about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament reaffirms the same laws about marriage and sexuality. And there are even places in the New Testament where the, the apostles are instructing people, don't adopt the, the, the cultural signs of a different gender than the one that you are. Don't deliberately do that. Uh, Jesus himself, he actually refers to Genesis 1.27 in his teaching on, on marriage. In Matthew 19, he starts off by saying, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? And he treats this sex distinction as the basis, as the foundation for human society. It's, it, it explains how we ought to act. But you still might think, okay, but what about people who just don't identify with the sex of their body? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't it actually be better to prioritize their, their spirit, their soul, who they feel like they are on the inside? Like, that's actually the more Christian way, right? Like, it's, it's the more spiritual way. We are people who uh, attend to the spirit above the flesh, right? Actually, No. Actually, no. Prioritizing the spiritual and the mental over the physical is actually an ancient heresy that Christians rejected a long time ago. It's called Gnosticism. We we had this debate uh, two two millennia ago. And the, the reason Christians rejected it is because the Bible gives such a high priority to the body and to the physical. The, the Bible is a, a surprisingly unspiritual book in a whole lot of ways. Like it starts off with a God who makes a physical world. On the the first page, God makes human beings with sexed bodies and declares, this is very good. And throughout the Bible, God is deeply concerned with humans' uh, humans physical lives and our physical needs. At the pivotal point in history, God himself shows up. And he doesn't show up as kind of a, a disembodied spirit. He shows up as a human being with a physical body and a biological sex. God has a body. Jesus, in his life, he he broke all sorts of gender stereotypes. He did not fit the exact pattern of masculinity in his society. But at the same time, he lived as a man in a male body. And he suffered and he died in that body. And and after that, he didn't uh, just sort of go back to his uh, spiritual state. He was resurrected in a physical body. And he still has that body. And one day he will return in a physical sexed body and he will have that body forever. And when he returns, he's going to do the same for us. He's going to renew the physical world. He's not whisking us off to some spiritual place. He's going to resurrect our bodies and they will be whole again. And in the meantime, the Bible says again and again, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We should offer our bodies as acts of worship to God. We are accountable for what we do in the body. From start to finish, the Bible declares, matter matters. Our body is significant. 
They're not temporary earth suits that we just sort of happen to use right now and we'll take off later. This is us. We, I am my body. You are your body. Our bodies are good gifts from God and they are part of who we are. They are part of our identities. Now, that doesn't mean that things can't go wrong with our bodies or the way we relate to our bodies. Even in the passage where Jesus says God made them male and female, he actually acknowledges that there are some people who are born with abnormalities in their sexual development. Jesus talks about eunuchs. In ancient time, a eunuch was someone who was castrated either so that they couldn't have sex or couldn't have children. And so Jesus, he says, there were eunuchs who were born that way. There's some people who are born with genitalia that was damaged or didn't develop or is ambiguous. It complicates things for them about sex and marriage and having children. Some of the people that are included in that category are people that today we might call intersex people. And while Jesus acknowledges this, he acknowledges the difficulty of it, it doesn't change the fact that he bases his teaching on on, uh, marriage and human society on the significance between the physical difference between men and women. He doesn't see those other situations as kind of, you know, variations kind of in the spectrum of human sexuality, but as tragic effects of the fall. And gender dysphoria is in the same category. This distress, gender dysphoria, is not the way things are supposed to be for people. When someone feels out of sync with their body, it's one of the many effects of a world broken by sin. Now, experiencing gender dysphoria, having that question, in and of itself is not a sin. It's a tragic, painful effect of the fall. And one day, it's one that God ultimately wants to heal for people when he remakes the world. But just because gender dysphoria is not in itself sinful, it doesn't mean that we should embrace it. Because embracing that dysphoria as our true identity would be sinful. Now, at a glance, it might seem like letting someone embrace that would be the more compassionate approach to this. But I don't think so. I actually think that in many ways, when people try to conform their outer world to their inner world, it does tremendous damage to them. It's, it's, it's tragic. This is especially true for children and adolescents who go through this, who undergo treatment uh, to block the onset of puberty or to take cross-sex hormones. These are treatments that leave people with lifelong consequences, infertility, loss of sexual function, permanent changes to uh, voice and facial hair. Even simply delaying puberty for a few years can affect the development of all kinds of other bodily systems, bones and so on, even things that are not related to sex. And and here's the reality about gender dysphoria in children, okay? About 80% or more of children who experience some form of gender dysphoria, it resolves itself by puberty. Like, it just, it's a developmental thing that they grow out of. It doesn't mean it's not distressing, it's not painful, but four out of five children, minimum, do not experience it simply by growing up. And so doctors and parents who consent to procedures like these, are, are, they're doing it out of compassion for a child who seems distressed and in pain, but they're often overlooking the long-term damage that's being done. This is even more true for older teenagers and adults who undergo surgery to remove their breasts or their reproductive or their sexual organs. Those are changes you cannot take back. You cannot undo those things. There are other situations medically where we would never think to align someone's body with their inner sense of self. There's a rare psychological condition where someone will look at a part of their body, their arm or their leg, and they'll see it as not part of their body. Psychologically, it feels like it's somebody else's body part. And it's incredibly distressing to feel like you've got someone else's body part kind of stitched onto you. And they will go to their doctors and they will beg, will you amputate my arm? Will you amputate my leg? You know what doctors say to that? No. I took an oath that begins, first do no harm, 
and I'm not going to remove a perfectly healthy body part. And what they do is they come alongside that person and they help that person uh, resolve the distress through psychological, not physical means. Now, here's the saddest thing about all of this. Sex reassignment surgery and uh, the therapies that go along with that, they're not actually effective in reducing gender dysphoria. Uh, Studies have shown that for some people, it reduces some dysphoria for them. But levels of anxiety and depression and suicidality remain disturbingly high even after transition. It doesn't actually provide what it promises. There's actually a growing community of people who have medically transitioned, regretted it, and are seeking as best they can to undo some of those effects, even though they can't fully do that. These detransitioners, they don't get a lot of airtime because it complicates the narrative our society is trying to tell, but their stories are really important to hear because they help us realize that aligning the body to the mind is not actually the most loving and compassionate option. So where does this leave us? What, what should someone do if they're experiencing gender dysphoria? And I, I wanna tell you, there is no simple answer to this. I don't have steps for this. I don't have like a, a blueprint or something like that. But I'll tell you this, it starts by saying to Jesus, I'm gonna trust you enough to obey you even in this area where it might hurt me, where it might be difficult. I'm gonna trust you with this. I know that this journey will also involve finding people to walk with you through it. And that probably means finding a counselor, a Christian counselor that you can, you can work through on these things. That you need someone that you can go to and say, I, here's what I'm experiencing. I experienced this gender dysphoria, but I also believe that God's desire for me is to embrace the gender that he gave me. A non-Christian counselor is not gonna help you do that. You need to go to someone who's a believer. If you're having trouble finding someone like that, our care team, our care pastors, will be happy to connect you with the counselors that we work with here as a church uh, that, that, that are really wonderful. I also want you to know that this is not something that, that is going to sort of just quickly resolve. You can't just make a decision and say, well, I just want to be done with that. I'm gonna make a different choice. That God works miracles. He does profound things. And for some people, this sort of thing goes away. But for a lot of people, it takes time. It's a process of healing like so many things. And for some people, it persists even through their life. And so you need to be realistic to say, this is gonna be hard, this is gonna be sacrificial, but I'm gonna stick with it because I want what God desires for me. Now, I wanna address those of you who are teenagers or kids right now because I have one really important recommendation for you, okay? So if you're experiencing this, this is the one thing I would ask you to do. Talk to the adults who love you sooner rather than later. Sooner rather than later. There's so many teenagers who they have questions about their sexuality or their gender, and what they do to kind of figure those things out is they'll go to the internet or they'll go to their friends. And they'll spend time thinking about this, figuring out what they think, what they wanna do, and come to some conclusions, and then they'll go to their parents. And this creates incredible conflict and tension. You know why? Because you've had so much time to think about what you think about that and figure some things out, but your parents have no idea. And they're blindsided, and they don't know how to react. And they're, they're at the beginning of the journey with this, even though you're a little bit along the way. Now, I know that those kind of conversations sound really scary. Like, I, I've heard stories from friends who said, hey, this was, a, this was a really rough conversation with my parents. That's actually the reason why I say you should do it sooner rather than later. Because starting earlier in the journey is what's gonna draw you together. And I'll actually give you the line. This is what you should use if you wanna talk to your parents about this, okay? You, you say this, mom, dad, I need your help figuring something out. You hear, hear how that sounds? It's an invitation, not a declaration. Instead of saying, I figured all this out, this is who I am and what I wanna do, you say to the, the, the adult that loves you, can you help me figure this out? It, draw them into that. Now, I don't know all of your parents, but I am, I'm pretty sure that if you have even a decent relationship with your parents, that this approach is gonna go so much better than trying to figure it out and then going to them 
or, or trying to go to your friends and figure it out without letting your parents into this. Now, that being said, I want to talk to the parents here. And I want to talk to all parents here, whether this is something that is part of your family or not yet. All of us need to think, how will I respond if my child comes out to me in this way? And I want to tell you what your opening line needs to be, okay? This is really important. You ready for this? You may want to write it down. First thing out of your mouth should be, I love you so much. The the second thing you need to say is also really important. You should say, I love you so much. Because you you have to understand this. When your child comes to you and shares something like this, whether it's confusion or a a decision they made or any of this thing, they're not trying to tell you something in that moment. They're trying to ask you something. They're asking, do you still love me? Do you still want me? Am I still yours? Will you still delight in me? Will you stick with me through this? They're they're not asking what you think about their sexuality or their gender. They're asking, what do you think about me? And until you answer that question thoroughly and well, you can't go on to the other really important conversations that you definitely need to have. You've got to, you've got to. This This is the relationship where this is so important. You've got to convince your children of what is true, that you love them deeply. Once you assure your child of your love, The next thing you need to do is start asking questions, not probing, kind of, you know, challenging kinds of questions, but genuine, gentle questions, saying, tell me what you've been going through. Help me understand this. And once you've done those two things, affirmed your love and listened to what they're going through, that's where the journey begins. If you start there, even though it's not going to be easy, okay, there's never an easy journey with all of this, you've got a much better chance, though, of it going someplace healthy and good for your relationship and for your child. I actually think the most important thing that we can do, though, is to start talking to our kids about sexuality and gender long before these sorts of conversations ever come up. You need to start talking to your kids at a very early age, as early as you can, really. You need to make it so that you are the first and most trusted source of information about sexuality and gender in their lives. You need to celebrate how God made them, the gender God gave them, the body that God gave them. You need to talk to them about these things before they encounter it in a TV show or in some kind of media. I mean, here's the thing, Muppet Babies, a show for children just recently, Gonzo is non-binary, goes to a party wearing a princess dress. So it's out there even for young kids. You, you gotta talk to them before they hear about it at, at school or from a friend. Because honestly, public schools are not the best place to hear about these things. They're, they're not neutral environments, just sort of giving neutral information out there. I've got friends who are teachers who work in public schools and they, they keep telling me that they're being asked to push things that go beyond simply making school safe for kids who identify as trans, which we all want that. We want every child to be safe in school. But they're saying there's a real pressure to celebrate and encourage one particular view of gender identity, and it's not the biblical one. So you need to know this. If you are not talking to your kids about sexuality and gender, somebody else is, they're not necessarily representing what Christ has to say about this. This is also the reason why it's so important to just be talking about the Bible in other ways in your home. One of the reasons that as a church we say you should be reading the Bible with your children is so that when you get to hard conversations about topics, that's not the first time you say, well, let's see what the Bible has to say about this, as if now it's relevant. Like, if you take the posture as a family of saying, we always look to the Bible to see what it says about everything, then when a bigger, harder thing comes along, it makes sense to say, we also do this for this. That's that's why that practice is really important. But, but what about just relating with people around us, okay? So we all know people, uh, whether it's coworkers or neighbors or friends uh, who, who are experiencing some of this, who identify as transgender. How, how do you relate to someone? 
In some ways, it's a really simple answer. You relate to them like everybody else, okay? They're, they're human beings made in the image of God. You give them the same dignity and respect and love that they deserve. And, and that starts simply by showing interest in them as a person, just like in their lives, you know what I mean? But for a lot of people who are gender nonconforming, their whole life ends up kind of, you know, wrapping around the, their gender identity and, and talking about this and so on. But the reality is they've got all sorts of things in their life, you know what I mean? Just like the rest of us, their lives are complex. And so relating to someone is as simple as saying, well, let's talk about the movies you like or what your plans are for the weekend or where you grew up or, you know, the, the experiences you've had. It's just like everybody else. Uh, and as Christians, we ought to be uh, the sort of people uh, who are really, really relating well. And it doesn't mean that you uh, pry into their gender identity, okay? If someone doesn't invite you into that to talk about those things, you don't try to ask probing questions on that. But if they do, be willing to listen and learn and understand. Uh, one of the things that Christ followers should do is make sure we are sticking up for, for transgender people whenever we can. So if someone is being mistreated or mocked or gossiped about, we should be the first to shut that down. If someone is good at their job, advocate for them to have more opportunities just like you would somebody else. If they're going through a hard time, be the first one to show up and say, I wanna be there to bring a meal or to help out when you're out of town, whatever. I'm gonna be there for you. Transgender people have stressful lives for a lot of reasons. Some are the same as you. And so you should do for them what you would want someone to do for you. This is what I think would be amazing. If the transgender people in our lives would be able to say, you know what, I've got the best neighbor it's this Christian guy down the street, but he's awesome. Or my boss is amazing. Like she's really into our church, but she's great to work for. That's, that's what we want. Now, of course, the, the sticky question often comes up. Okay, what about names and pronouns? Like this is what people always want to ask about, okay? It's a complicated topic, and there are Christians who are kind of debating what's the best approach about this. But let me tell you where we've landed as a church, okay? First is this. If you are a Christ follower and you experience gender dysphoria, and you say, well, what pronouns is it okay for me to use? We just want to tell you clearly that, that you ought to use the pronouns that correspond to the gender that God gave your body. If you experience gender dysphoria, that can be a difficult thing, that can be a hard thing to do, but your goal should be to say, I want to refer to myself and to have other people refer to me with the pronouns that correspond to who I am. But in a situation where someone is uh, not a Christ follower and they've said, here's my name, here are my pronouns, what should you do, okay? Uh, let me tell you this, your overarching goal is to honor God and to honor that person. So we honor God, even if that causes controversy, it creates tension, uh, even if it's something that, that people take in an offensive way, uh, we still wanna honor God and, and the way God made people. We, we also wanna honor people. We wanna treat them with respect, maintain good relationships with them as best as we can, but we also don't want to participate in someone embracing an identity that's a rejection of who God made them to be. And so with that in mind, let me offer you three suggestions, okay, got kind of guidelines here. Okay, first is this. When someone shares a name they'd like to be called, Go ahead and use the name, okay? Names are really flexible. You know, we all know people who go by nicknames or, you know, they uh, changed their name as they got to be an adult. They said, well, as a kid, I was called dad. Can you call me this now? And, and so on. Names are really easy. Just use the name that someone likes. Um, and this might be hard if it's someone who is a loved one in your family because uh, maybe you're used to calling them one name for a while. Maybe you even gave them uh, their name at birth. And so this, this, is, this is emotionally hard. But morally speaking, you, there shouldn't be a question of saying, oh, yeah, well, I'll call you the name that you like. Second thing I say is this, uh, when it comes to pronouns, when you're in a conversation with someone, it, it's not really an issue. You're, you're saying you, you're saying their name, that sort of thing. But you might be in a setting where you're talking about a coworker or a, a student at your school or a, a friend that you know with somebody else. And you say, okay, what, what pronoun should I use? I'll tell you what I do. I use they and them, okay? Uh, I, I mean, the reason I do this is because I do it with people when it has nothing to do with this issue, right? Like if I just tell a story and I don't want you to be able to identify someone, 
I'll say, well, I was talking to them, and they did this, and they said that, and we, we do it all the time, right? Like, it's a, a neutral kind of thing. So I feel comfortable doing that with, with somebody else as well. Uh, and, and, you know, you just don't want to always be bringing that controversy and rocking the boat in every conversation you're having at work about that person. If you're in a professional setting where you've got to fill out a form and, you know, someone has a kind of an official, you know, uh, pronoun or a gender that they've got and it's, you know, grades or a medical record or something that for your job you got to fill out, don't sweat it. Just fill out the form. That's, that's not a big deal. But here's the third thing I'd say, and this is the, the most challenging one. If you are in an interpersonal relationship with someone and they're insisting, I would like you to use pronouns that do not correspond with my sex. I, 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 I would like you to call me she. And you're saying, this is, this is something that uh, you, you say, I, I don't want to uh, misrepresent who this person is. What you need to do is lovingly, kindly, and clearly say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And this is not something you go out of your way to say, well, I'm really gonna have this conversation, make sure they know where I stand. But if someone says, no, I really insist that you do this, you need to say, I love you and I want to be your friend, but you know that we have different beliefs about this and I don't mean any disrespect. But I believe that God made you a man and my conscience won't allow me to misrepresent what I believe by calling you she or her. Now, let's be clear. That's not a conversation that's gonna be easy. They're not gonna react well. It may even cost you the relationship. And it's very hard because we want to maintain relationships with everybody that we can, especially if they're close. But this is part of drawing healthy boundaries and honoring God. It is part of the tension of approaching people with both truth and love. We never want to let go of either, and we want to be able to, to, to stand before them doing both of those things. Now, I want to close with this. There is one other form of identity we need to talk about, and I think this is actually the most important one. We, we have our human identity. We have our gender identity, but we also have our beloved identity. Remember how people try to figure out who they are. Uh, we, some look out to society to tell us who we are. Some look to their feelings to tell them who they are. But what we do is we look up to God to tell us who we are. And when we do that, do you know who we see? We see Jesus. We see Jesus. It's it, not some distant, abstract God who's out there. We specifically see Jesus, and he tells us who we are. He is the God who loved us too much to stay away from us. He is the God who stepped into our world, took on a body, and suffered and died for us. When we look outward, we can never live up to society's expectations. When we look inward, we experience anxiety and guilt and shame. But when we look upward, we see the face of the one who made us and knows us and has seen us at our worst and loves us anyway. When you wonder, who am I? Your first answer should always be, I am someone who Jesus loves. I am sought after, I am pursued on my own, I, I might be a mess. I, I'm confused. I'm out of sync. I am sinful and guilty, but in him, I am welcomed and embraced and treasured and righteous. And, and I know that when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to gender, it can be really hard to embrace God's desires for you. It, it can almost feel impossible, like it's too big of a sacrifice. It, it might feel like death. And the only way you're gonna be able to walk down this path is if you trust the one who is leading you. And so I wanna urge you to look to Jesus. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before he was crucified, he is crying out to God. His agony in his body is overwhelming. He is sweating blood. He's begging, if there's another way, if I don't have to do it this way, could I do something else? His friends don't understand what he's going through. He feels deeply alone. He's so overwhelmed. 
But why does he go through with it? Why does he choose to suffer the way that he does? Because he wanted you. He wanted you. So much that he would pay anything to have you, to enter into your suffering, your pain, your guilt, your shame, all so that you could have life and healing and wholeness if you trust and surrender to him. If Jesus loved you enough to do that, I promise you, you can trust him with anything. You can trust him with your sexuality and your gender. I really think this is the first step. You don't have to have it all figured out. You just need to decide, will I trust Jesus enough to take the first step? Let's pray. Jesus, it is amazing that you call us your own, that when we look to you, you say, you are mine. You belong to me. After all we've done, after all we've been through, or the mess we've made of our lives, God, that you would love us and pursue us is astounding. Jesus, we pray that you would help us to sink our roots deep into that, to rest in who you say that we are, to believe it, to live it out. God, in these other areas of our life that feel uh, so confusing and overwhelming and difficult, God, we pray that we would trust you to follow you wherever you lead. God, I pray for each person here that you would help each of us to see ourselves in you and to see other people as you have made them, to love well, to honor you and how we treat them, and that we would experience wholeness because of what you've done. We pray this in your name. Amen.